A visitor to Mountain View, Arkansas could be forgiven for thinking everyone in town plays an instrument or sings. Those jam sessions on the court square most any weekend night and lots of midweek nights as well. Whenever the folk center doors are open, there's always some kind of musical show going on. And banners around town proclaim Mountain View the folk music capital of the world. Now, I suspect that's not an official designation. I don't recall the United Nations sponsoring a plebiscite on the issue, but Mountain View is a musical place. There's no denying it. Before the Arkansas Folk Festival was created in 1963, before the Ozark Folk Center opened 10 years later, this little Ozark town's brightest moment in the spotlight came way back in 1929. The attention focused on Mountain View that year wasn't due to any musical show, but to a trial. A murder trial, actually. But even then, music was never far from the action. Let's go back in the hills for the first of a three-part series on music and murder in the Ozarks. The trial, which took place shortly before Christmas of 1929, featured four Stone County men accused of brutally slaying a drifter in the rural community of St. James, about 14 miles east of Mountain View, in a valley separating the rocky White River Hills from the steep and rugged Boston Mountains. The drifter, a young man known as Connie Franklin, had temporarily settled in St. James earlier that year and had gotten engaged to a local girl. But the real focus of the trial was not on the alleged killers, it was the murder victim himself, for there he was sitting in the gallery each day of the trial. He even testified in the trial of his own alleged murderers. At least this fellow claimed he was Connie Franklin when he showed up a few days before the trial was to begin. The alleged killers and their families were delighted to see him, and reporters covering the story detailed tearful reunions inside dank jail cells. But the teenager who had been betrothed to the man who had seemingly come back from the dead, this ghost of the Ozarks, declared him an imposter, and so did about half of St. James's citizens. So the trial, covered coast to coast and known far and wide as the Connie Franklin trial, was officially about an alleged murder. In reality, though, it was a referendum on one man's identity. Was the man who emerged from the shadows on the eve of trial the real Connie Franklin? Or was he a charlatan, perhaps paid by the families of the accused men in a bold attempt to circumvent justice? The young drifter who was believed to have been killed played a mean harmonica, or French harp as it was called in those days. All could agree on that. And so it was that music came to play a role in identifying the Connie Franklin who came back from the dead. On Connie's first visit to Mountain View just days before the trial, the man who would have been his father-in-law couldn't make up his mind. He looks a lot like Connie, old Charlie admitted, but Charlie's daughter wasn't convinced, prompting Charlie to ask the man who claimed to be Connie Franklin to play a tune on the French harp. The Connie that Charlie remembered courting his daughter never went anywhere without his harmonica, but this fellow who just showed up in Mountain View didn't have one on him. It wasn't a promising sign. Maybe he was an imposter. One of the lawyers sent a little boy down the street to buy a French harp, and when he returned a few minutes later, Connie took it, turned to Charlie, and said, What do you want me to play? Everyone knew Charlie's favorite was Turkey in the Straw. Connie sheared down on it, and according to one reporter who witnessed the spectacle, played like he belonged on the Opry on Saturday nights. It was quite a performance, good enough to convince most onlookers that this had to be the one and only Connie Franklin, 
He was good, Charlie allowed, but he didn't quite slide over the notes the way the Connie he remembered had feathered them earlier that year. Subtle difference? Sure it was, but old Charlie knew his music. As it turned out, Connie Franklin was no slouch when it came to singing either. The young drifter who had allegedly been killed in 1929 loved to sing, and he loved to sing to the ladies especially. On the same day that the man claiming to be the real Connie Franklin played the harmonica for the man who was almost his father-in-law, he was escorted by lawyers and by Sheriff Johnson to a little house on the edge of Mountain View, Arkansas. Here, the sheriff and his wife, who was also his deputy, had arranged a lineup of half a dozen teenage girls, one of which was the girl to whom Connie Franklin had proposed earlier that year. They wanted to see if this fellow could identify her to see if he was who he said he was. As soon as they walked him into the parlor, the man who claimed to be Connie marched right up to his former sweetheart, Tiller, but she was incredulous. She would later admit that this fellow bore a strong physical resemblance to her old beau, but something just didn't seem right, and she refused to admit he was not an imposter. Connie Franklin proceeded to regale her and the crowd of onlookers with intimate details of their courtship. You remember that song I sung you when we were sitting on that creek bank? She did. It was their song, The Trail of the Lonesome Pine. He sang the first verse. According to one reporter who was in the parlor that afternoon, the song brought tears to the teenage girl's eyes. But she stuck by her story that something was different about this character, that he wasn't the Connie Franklin she had known and loved. The mystery and the music didn't end there, though. The case went to trial a few days later, and the trial quickly turned into a community referendum on the identity of the man who testified at the trial for his own murder. Defense attorneys produced a steady stream of witnesses who swore that the grinning, disheveled fellow alive and well in the courtroom was the Connie Franklin they had known. The prosecution supplied an equal number of people willing to put a hand on the Bible and declare him an imposter an actor in a cruel hoax played by the defense and the families of the four men accused of murder. One of the prosecution's witnesses was a boy named Hoyt, a little brother of the teenage girl in this story. On the stand, Hoyt testified that the Connie who had courted his sister loved to sing a funny song called You Gotta Quit Kicking My Dog Around. Only the Connie he had known earlier that year always pronounced the word dog, dorg. He always sang, you gotta quit kicking my dorg around. But, Hoyt claimed, when he asked this Connie, the one here in the courtroom, to sing the song for him a few days ago, this Connie didn't sing about no dorg. He sang dog just as plain as day. So young Hoyt, like his sister and his father, dismissed the Connie Franklin in the courtroom as a fake, a low-down, shameless imposter, a good one, you better know it, but a fraud nonetheless. While the Ozark trial of the century came to an end a couple days after Hoyt's testimony and the covey of reporters whose stories spread from coast to coast caught the Sillimore train for home. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the verdict was. It's all there in my book, Ghost of the Ozarks. And as we say in the Ozarks, I don't aim to run it for you. What I will do is tell you what happened to the Ghost of the Ozarks, the fellow who came back to testify the trial of his own murder, the fellow who may or may not have been the real Connie Franklin, the fellow who may or may not have been an imposter. Even after the trial, the soundtrack to the story of the Ghost of the Ozarks still had some life in it. In the gallery on the last day of the trial were two show businessmen from Chicago, Arthur McBride and Jack Shanfield. 
They had their sights set on making a film about the saga of Connie Franklin, but in the meantime, they planned to tour the middle of the country with a vaudeville-style review featuring the ghost himself, Connie Franklin, along with an old mountaineer named Crick Greenway and one of the lawyers from the trial. The hastily organized show debuted in Little Rock a couple of days later. As vaudeville reviews went, it was pretty tame. The ghost blew a few tunes on the French harp, the lawyer gave a talk on the people of the Ozarks, and old Crick? Well, he was marched out on stage where he stood and said nothing so that the audience could get a close look at a real hill man. Connie Franklin had designs on a career as a music star, just like blue yodeler Jimmy Rogers, whom Connie claimed was his cousin. So the ghost of the Ozarks was disappointed when the show's producers hired a Jimmy Rogers knockoff to strum and sing a few songs as the review's main musical act. But it mattered little, for Connie's dreams of stardom were not to be. After only one show and a brief radio appearance in Little Rock, the producers and the ghost received a court injunction ordering them to turn over a percentage of the show's profits to Connie's estranged wife, who was living in poverty with three children in the Arkansas Delta. That was the end of the show. The ghost of the Ozarks disappeared from public view. He drifted back onto the hobo's trail. Three years later, he lay in a boarding house in eastern Arkansas, dead of a burst appendix. But his legacy would live on in song. Not in terribly memorable song, but no one's writing a song about you or me, so why judge? In the hills of Van Buren County, Arkansas, there lived a farmer named W.T. Kendrick. Mr. Kendrick was also a singing school teacher, one of those old-timey itinerant instructors in the do-re-mis who taught folks how to read the shape notes in those cheap paperback gospel songbooks from Stamps Baxter. Mr. Kendrick loved writing songs, which he usually did by setting his own lyrics to the melodies of popular tunes. Inspired by the twists and turns of the Connie Franklin story as it played out in the newspapers and moved by the human suffering obscured by reporters' sensationalism, he wrote not one but two songs. He published both in a little booklet he titled Roving Thoughts. The longer of the two lamented the drifter's abandonment of his young family and his duplicity in promising to wed another. So beware when you may and with a stranger flee, wrote Kendrick, for you'd never know for sure what your name would be. The other song, titled simply Connie Franklin, he set to the melody of a popular song from the 20s called The Death of Floyd Collins, inspired by a real-life cave tragedy in Kentucky. I've never come across a recording of either song, so this may be the first. Here's Connie Franklin by W.T. Kendrick. Come all you fair young maidens and listen while I tell of that noted Connie Franklin of whom you all know well. He courted a fair damsel, Miss Tilly was her name. She was sweet sixteen and single, and he passed himself the same. He won her love while courting, and then proposed to wed. Because she learned to love him, she accepted him, she said. They started off to marry, she thought him true and kind. Though he had not told the story of his wife and babes behind. While walking on together toward the parson's home, soon expecting to be married, 
to be each other's own. A band of men o'ertook them, twas five and all, she said. They seized and beaten Connie, till she thought him to be dead. The meanest of all humans, twas two of this ring band, where they led me off from Connie, both pulled me by the hand, led me out in the darkness, assaulted me to shame, then threatened they would kill me if I e'er told their name. They left me there so lonely, my life was all in dread, and a grieving over Connie, I thought him to be dead. But while I strode so lonely, in search for father's home, I thought that in the judgment, these men will meet their doom.